welcome to the seventh Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is Day of the Girl. We're going to be hearing from Professor Dame Athene Donald, physicist and gender balance champion. We'll also meet Ollie Black, dad of three, who works for Brighter Horizons, a company that helps combine work and family. As ever, we'll also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's associate editor, who's going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast, Professor Dame Athene Donald. Hello there, how are you doing? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. It's the start of another academic year. Oh, well, and what an academic year it's going to be too. Yes, it's going to be different. A challenge. Well, we like challenges, so that's all okay. So, Athene, when we first spoke with you in our written issue, it was going way back to 2015. Please, could you remind us about your career to date? Okay, so I'm a physicist. I studied at Cambridge. I did my uh, first degree and my PhD in Cambridge, spent four years in the States and then came back to Cambridge where I've been ever since moving up the ranks to professor in the university. In 2014, so just before you interviewed me last, I also became Master of Churchill College, which is one of the 31 colleges in Cambridge. And As of September, I formally retired from my position as a professor in the university. Cambridge still has a mandatory retirement age, so I had to retire, but I will be continuing at Churchill College, and I am sure I will continue championing, as it were, um, diversity, girls in science, and all that kind of stuff. Well, that is very good to hear, because we would miss you if you weren't doing that anymore. So for listeners without a scientific background, please could you explain the area of physics that's your special, specialised area? Sure. So I like to think of it as the physics of the everyday. Uh, I used to study material that would be very familiar to anyone, such as food and paint. So uh, the formal area is soft condensed matter physics. And also increasingly I moved into areas that interface with biology, so biological physics. And so if I take the example of starch, what I was interested in there was trying to understand not the behavior of individual molecules, but how the molecules pack together in the starch granule that it would be found in a grain of wheat or something like that. And how the way that packing sort of interfaces with what happens, say, when we cook starch. Um, trying to understand what happens to the structure at the many molecule level and what that means for making custard or something. Oh, I, I like your explanation. That's a very practical explanation. This, this, this helps non-scientists. <laughs> so you got into physics when you were 13, I believe. What was it that triggered this interest? Uh, I don't think anything triggered it sort of externally, it was that as I was taught physics as a separate science, it it just, I just fell in love with it. So it wasn't that I'd always been interested in the stars or anything like that, nor that I had scientific parents, which I didn't. It was simply that the lessons intrigued me. I had a really good teacher, which makes so much difference. Uh, And, uh, I just decided fairly early on that that's what I wanted to do. You've been an advocate for gender balance in science for quite a few years now. What made you so passionate about this and how has the issue evolved over time? Have we actually got any further forward? Have we got any further forward? I think insofar as it is very much talked about now, yes, there is a lot more recognition of the problem. Have we solved the problems? No. Um, and it's it's going to be a formidable challenge, I think. I got into it because, well, basically because I was angry and 
as I retire, I, I feel able to be more open about some of the things that happened to me. As a, a young researcher, even quite early on in my academic career, I just got on with my science and that, that felt fine. And I was fortunate in having really supportive mentors, uh, which I think are so important. People who uh, sort of encouraged me, offered me opportunities, stiffened my spine, as it were, all that kind of thing. That, that was brilliant. But as I got more senior, it became clear to me that my voice wasn't heard in the department, so the Department of Physics. It wasn't heard in the way I imagined someone of my seniority should be heard, if you like. So looking around at my peers, somehow I didn't fit in. It was at a time when there weren't that many senior academic women. So I was a professor and I was the first woman, well, I was the first woman to be a lecturer in my department. I, and I was the first woman to be a professor in any of the physical sciences in Cambridge. So I was bound to stand out and I was stuck on loads of committees and I would turn up and I would feel, why am I bothering? They're not listening. And various specific things happened, which, got me very angry and I felt I don't understand why in Cambridge but not outside I wasn't particularly you know, cutting the mustard as it were outside and by this point I was a fellow of the Royal Society which is the National Academy of Sciences in the Royal Society I did not have this same sensation at all which I find kind of puzzling because a lot of uh, FRSs that's the fellows of the Royal Society would have been Cambridge professors so it, it seems strange and I still can't explain that difference but I wanted to speak up so that the women who came after me perhaps would not have to go through this it was very hard to work out what was going wrong but if you talk to people now and I, I happen to have a conversation with a woman not in fact a scientist not in Cambridge but someone a senior academic who was describing things that felt exactly the same as I'd gone through so things haven't particularly changed and I think if you are a person of colour, it must be every bit as bad, if not a lot worse. So if you're in a minority, somehow there is this bias, this uh, sort of exclusion that is probably not knowingly occurring. I think a lot of people do not know that someone who doesn't look like them makes them uncomfortable and therefore they don't pay the same attention. Do you think it's, it is just things people aren't familiar with? Yes, I think there's an element of that. And I also think, uh, and when I started doing gender work within the university, and I was the university's gender equality champion for four years, I would go around and talk to women. And what I would hear is women feeling frustrated that if a man lost his temper, if a man thumped the table or went red in the face and started shouting, the other men... They may not have liked it, but they accepted it. But if a woman starts either doing that or tearing up, which, of course, unfortunately, some of us can be prone to do, then that was regarded as totally unacceptable. There is this argument that, that women crying makes men uncomfortable. So they just don't want to have to cope with that. And then they make jokes like it's that time of the month or... You know, a woman of a certain age or whatever and it, it it becomes very uncomfortable all around and I think this difference really matters at that career stage it's not what puts girls off at science at school but it is I think something that happens as women get more senior they are yeah you know, the way I express it is I, I they couldn't patronize me anymore but I was an unexpected threat and they didn't know how to handle that. And I think that is every bit as true today in many circumstances as it was you know, 20 years ago when this hit me. And of course, there are many really decent men who will do everything they can to support. But it's as if, and I think academia is particularly bad in this respect because it's built on competition, if you like. So... I think a lot of people think of it as if you win, I lose. And therefore, I've got to make sure you don't win. Instead of thinking we're all in it together, we're all out to you know, um, build a better society or educate 
the students or whatever it may be. Somehow there is always this sense of competition, which makes it quite a difficult environment and probably worse in academia than if you're a scientist in industry. I imagine. I don't know. I've never been in industry. So we're, we're speaking about Day of the Girl in particular. So um, the obligatory question and how many times have you, if you had a pound for every time you've been asked this question, <laughs> wow. Um, so how do we get more girls into STEM subjects and how do we get them continuing with, with STEM su subjects? All the evidence is that decisions are made really quite young about what a child thinks their future might look like. And, and so there are various key things. There is the issue about role model. You can't be what you can't see is a frequently used phrase. So if you've never seen a woman engineer, say, it's perhaps hard to imagine that you could be one. So that is one aspect, which I think people are really quite conscious of now. And sometimes you look at poster campaigns or something and you think, are there any white men out there? Because they're all you know, minorities of some sort or another. I think much harder to deal with, again, it's this sort of unconscious bias and this socialising. So the way parents interact with you know, male and female children and the way teachers do and the way society portrays scientists and engineers, I think all act subliminally to give a message to a young person that you know, it's okay for a man to be an engineer but not a woman. And I would imagine most people are really unconscious of how they come across. The Institute of Physics did some very interesting work going into schools and watching teachers in the classroom and, and spotting that the way the teachers interacted with the boys and girls in their classes were different. So there's everything from the incredibly practical and something that probably happens at primary school, which is if the, the girls are encouraged to play with the toy kitchen and the boys do jigsaws, so the girls don't really learn how to think spatially. You know, their spatial awareness is not developed the same. And then a bit later on, teachers will say, well, the girl isn't very good at spatial awareness, therefore she can't possibly be going on to be an engineer. But if she'd had the same opportunities for practice, and, you know, there's lots of studies showing this, that practice does improve that skill. But if you aren't given that opportunity, you don't develop it. And then you look as if you can't be a future engineer. Um, so there's that aspect. There's the messaging that, you know, you don't want to, to do something that's dirty. You don't want to do things with your hands. You're not given toys that enable you to take things to pieces or build them again. Um, and so these, these messages actually have got worse. I mean, it's part of the pinkification. I'm intrigued by the way Lego advertising has developed. Back in the 70s, kits used to come with a little slip of paper, I believe. I mean, I've seen this on the web, and I've seen the pictures of, of the messages which said, your girl may want to build a rocket, your boy may want to, to think about, you know, what was the examples they gave? I forget now, but sort of build a nursery or something, you know, things that are counter-stereotypical. And, uh, and, you know, the message went on to say that it should be their imagination that counts, not any sort of preconceived ideas. And then you look at the way Lego is packaged now. So you've got the very pink, you know, here is a shop or hairdressers or whatever. This is what girls build. And the boys are allowed to be pirates and all the rest of it. And it seems so unnecessary to carve things up like that. But it is a quite, well, it's not a subtle messaging. It's quite a stark messaging that, that of course, children will internalise and therefore assume that, well, I don't suppose we want anyone to go off and be pirates, but you know what I mean, to, to go off in a rocket or, you know, spaceship, whatever. So I think we get that sort of social conditioning which is so ubiquitous, it's quite hard to spot. So there are all these different factors which discourage girls without them ever necessarily even noticing. There are, of course, overt um, messages. So one of my colleagues talked about how her daughter had been told as a 10, 11-year-old, you do maths like a boy. I don't even know what that means. But it was obviously oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, it's, it's such a turn-off. And so I think teachers, they have a huge role to play and they don't necessarily spot that. I mean, I could put a counter um, example, which was when I went to 
my son's parents' evening when he was about 11, and I was told, well, of course, boys can't do English. And, and, you know, that's just as damaging. Why are our English A-level classes and our English university courses full of girls? Well, if the teachers take that attitude, it's not surprising. So it cuts both ways. Sure. Uh, we recently spoke with our friends from Let Toys Be Toys, who you're probably oh, yes. familiar with, who we, we, we love very much and we speak with them a lot. And th- there was a report around teaching and education, but we also work with uh, an organisation called Women Ed, which is women in education. And look at, so it's really nice to have that crossover between those groups. Uh, and, and I think that's when the interesting conversations really happen then, don't they? And that, 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 that exchange of ideas and looking at how we can address these things and make sure, because it's, it's in nobody's interest for those things to happen. No, and I think it is important. I mean, I get challenged, well, why do you care so much about girls and physics? And in a way, I care just as much that we have these other stereotypes that stop boys doing languages, for instance, or, or even becoming vets. Um, the, the FET classes are overwhelmingly female and medicine increasingly so. You know, it's as if somehow in our society we are determined to put people in boxes and say, you can't do this because you're the wrong sex or you can't do this because, you know, you come from the wrong kind of background or whatever it may be, instead of just letting people fulfil their potential. Why do you think physics and maths are framed as uh, hard subjects in society uh, and, and sometimes we, we, I've, we've had discussions before in various different pieces about people almost being wearing, saying, I'm rubbish at maths, as that being like a badge of honour, and that was kind of yes. all right. Why is that, and how do we change that? I don't know. I find it really strange, but you're right. It is regarded as a badge of honour. If I said I've never read any Shakespeare, everyone would recoil. But somehow it's okay to say, I can't do maths, I hated maths at school, whatever it may be. I think one difference between maths and physics say and history is that there is an objectively right answer if I could put it unkindly thinking about some of our politicians you can't waffle and um, I think that is significant but I think and I mentioned politicians because I think it is not irrelevant that politicians and policymakers more general more generally, typically don't have STEM backgrounds. And I think they don't understand it. They may have been taught badly at school or for whatever reason they were put off. Um, And so it it seems, again, it's about comfort. You know, it's uncomfortable to them. So they they try and justify it where it's so hard. Now, my view is, yeah, learning a language is just as hard. It's just different. And... All of us are born with lots of innate skills, and it's really a question of what gets developed. So I gave you the example of the teachers who say, why do you do maths like a boy at 10? When I was 11 or 12, my French teacher told me I had a lousy accent, and I gave up trying. I could do the grammar, I could write, but she put me off, and I just stopped trying. And I thought, okay, there's no point. I've got a lousy accent. And I think... It's very easy to get turned off by, you know, one simple remark. It's about, you're going on a journey, but it's about not giving up. So even professional physicists, mathematicians, they get stuck too. But, it's, a, it's, but it's about persisting in the face of that challenge, isn't it? And I think it is, you know, there is a right answer in many of these situations. So you do have to get to the end. You know, you can't build a bridge and start halfway, is it? Well, I mean, we still <laughs> well, can imagine what would happen if you do. I think so. You, you've got to work it through. I think that's right. Um, and persistence and critical thinking and all these things are skills that a scientist will learn. And I find it really quite odd that critical thinking is attributed to arts and humanities as if scientists didn't have it and yet it's absolutely fundamental you have to look at the evidence and if you have two bits of evidence that seem to be in disagreement you have to try and work out why you know was this experiment not done right have they changed the details of the experiment you've really got to analyze it critical thinking is central to how a scientist thinks and yet you know if you're in um, an art subject it's somehow presume that it is your preserve. I find that very odd. 
In terms of uh, COVID, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't get through the interview either without talking about COVID, everybody's favourite. How is COVID affecting gender balance in science, would you say? I think where it's been talked about a lot are the challenges for, well, mothers at home doing homeschooling as well as trying to work. And there's been some evidence gathered, again, in the academic community showing that the number of papers or grants being submitted by women it is sort of falling behind. Whatever proportion you might expect between men and women, the women are finding it harder to, to do this while they are working from home. Now, of course, again, many men will be helping, doing, looking after the homeschooling and the childcare and all the rest of it. But on average, it's more likely to fall to the woman's lot. So that, that is a major additional hurdle in, in making it hard. And I think it's, it's a challenge if we look, say, a year or two ahead and you try and compare uh, applicants for a job or for promotion or whatever, uh, you know, one man, one woman, and you say, well, the woman's got fewer papers submitted. How do you factor in the fact that actually she was trying to juggle all these different demands on her time. And I, I don't know the answer. I think it is right that these questions should be asked, that it should be possible for, for people to say, well, I really have very little time because between looking after my five-year-old and writing a new lecture course, I couldn't do anything else. But you can't tell if people are telling the truth, of course. I mean, it's, you know, it's really hard to know how to, to take these things into account. But I think it will be down the road that we see the consequences. There was a wonderful article that I will send across if it's uh, useful. So Kareen Bryan, who uh, has written lots of children's books, she's actually taking part in the written issue. And I saw a post that she put on LinkedIn uh, the other day and it was brilliant. And she was talking about sharing the parenting with her her husband uh, and it was really they had a brilliant system uh, of, of juggling and splitting stuff and then if somebody if, if there was all of a sudden if there was an unexpected something had cropped up they would take turns with the unexpected yeah. problems to challenge yeah. and it was very equitable and really fair and I thought it was so such a good way of, of being to make sure that neither of them were, were yeah but not all couples operate like that. And it does depend on, you know, what your job is, what your partner's job is and all the rest of it. Um, but, but it's, yeah, yeah, one can only look at statistical averages and the evidence is that it's the women who are suffering more. But in any particular family, there may indeed be a much more equitable sharing. Yeah. So we're going to keep asking the questions and we're going to keep sharing the good practice to uh, try and, take everybody along with us and, and encourage everybody to uh, share and, and share alike and do all the right stuff. So we've spoken uh, with you previously about the Athena Swan diversity charter. For readers without an academic background again, uh, please could you explain briefly what it is, its importance and how plans to change it might damage progress towards gender balance? Sure. So the Athena Swan charter was set up I don't know, 15 years ago. It was originally only in the sciences, though it's now broadened out. And it was a charter that universities and departments were meant to sign up to to demonstrate their commitment to gender equality. And in order to get an award, which came in at three levels, gold, silver and bronze, um, in order to get an award, you had to submit an application uh, stating what your department or university was doing, how it supported women, and increasingly it, it worried about other equality strands as well. And over the years, it had got really very data heavy, or to put it another way, very bureaucratic. So the numbers of different sets of data you needed to collect got really very substantial, and the whole thing became very onerous. I was a member of the, well, technically probably still am a member of the review group that was set up to, to try and work out how you could make it less bureaucratic. And we reported at just about the moment we were going down in, into lockdown, so that, that kind of got buried a bit. And, and 
Advance HE, which is the organisation that owns the Athena Swan Charter, put out a response again very early in the pandemic, and it all got rather murky um, in the sense that, you know, it just got lost, as it were. But then very recently, the um, science and the universities minister have said they want to get rid of lots of bureaucracy across higher education. And so these charter marks were no longer going to be factored in when it came to funding. In the case of clinical schools, there had been an absolutely explicit tie-up between uh, getting a silver award, a silver Athena award, and getting funding from one of the major funding agencies. And that was that link was going to be removed, and by implication across the whole higher education sector, these charter marks, which now included the race equality charter mark and Stonewall and things, would no longer be taken into account. Now, there is no doubt that Athena Swan had got very bureaucratic, but at the same time, departments did want to get the awards. They did feel it was a, a kite mark worth, worth having, if you like. And a lot of effort had been put in, and that had led to change in departments. Not always as much as one would hope, and sometimes I think what was written in the applications didn't necessarily translate into you know, as improved a culture as one might have hoped. But the idea that no one's going to pay any attention to this in a formal sense is likely to lead to uh, universities and departments not caring so much. And, and there is a particular danger in the Advance AG, who, as I say, own the charter. It's a subscription model. And given university finances are not going to be in a healthy shape, and there are so many things to worry about, it does seem plausible that universities will just stop subscribing, stop putting effort into you know, making a fairer working environment better for all. And I think that is a real danger, which the, the ministers have provoked, if you like. Now, it's not clear what will happen. This is all very recent. I think there will still be a lot of debate going on. And simultaneously with saying we're going to tear up these charters, the ministers also said that we really care about research culture. And it's not at all clear how you square that circle. And I think it's too early to say. And I'm sure a lot of people will be pressing for greater clarity and somehow maintaining this focus on improving the environment in our universities. Sure. So it's that whole what gets measured gets done, effectively. That, that is it, yes. Um, and the trouble is, of course, that what gets measured isn't necessarily what transforms the landscape. So a lot of the things that I've been talking about so far, for instance, in how you bring up your children, you wouldn't measure that. It is cultural uh, rather than necessarily quantitative. And I think that's why there was so much resentment about all the quantitative data that was being collected. Because particularly if you are being asked to reapply every three years, which was what it was, then it went up to four, I think. You, know, you might well not have employed another female professor in your department of physics just because you hadn't had an appointment. And so you could say, well, there's been no change, but that's not to say that the environment hasn't changed. Sure. So we shall follow this issue closely and uh, hopefully there will be a satisfactory resolution. Finally, then, what is coming up next for you and what are you excited about? So, as I say, I'm continuing as Master of Churchill and in principle, I should have more time for that because I'm no longer having to do my historic day job, as it were. Um, but I think one of the things I've got very interested in is education, not just in universities, in, in terms of those uh, school children who maybe aren't going to get stellar A-levels and go on to a, a university. Now, what are we doing for these people? And if we want this country to come out of the pandemic strong, um, we are going to need people with intermediate skills. And, it, you know, you can argue that one of the problems with the testing uh, regime around the pandemic is that we don't have enough technicians, for instance. They don't need a degree in biology to do a lot of the lab work that's needed. And so I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in 
if you like, technical skills, so-called level four and five. The recent announcement about adult reskilling, I think, is very important. So education in a, a very broad sense and what that means for what the politicians call a levelling up agenda. You know, I see it pretty in Cambridge, but if you don't have to go very far from Cambridge into the fence to realise there are some really disadvantaged towns and villages. And you know what should be done to support them to, to benefit from the strength of Cambridge University because it doesn't necessarily reach them. So I, I am exploring what that might mean and what that might mean for apprentices, including in the college. I mean, the college has started trying to support apprentices, particularly um, in things like our maintenance team, who are absolutely crucial to the, the, the way the college operates. So to give you a very specific example, we have a college with a lot of flat roofs and I would really like to get solar panels installed. And we've sent off a couple of our maintenance team to learn how to install solar panels. They don't need a degree in physics to do that. Um, and, you know, it's good for the college. It's good for them as individuals. And it, you know, at a certain level, it's good for the environment. So I feel these are things we can think much harder about. And it's maybe thinking about things in a different way. So going back to the COVID things as well, it's, it's looking at how we might work differently. Yes, the pandemic will shoot, sorry, shake so many things up um, and we need to, to learn from that. So I set the student body an essay about what can we learn from the pandemic in terms of sustainability, how, how will that change our practices? And, and it was very interesting reading their contributions and seeing how that generation thinks about things. So there's a lot... There's a lot for me to get stuck into. <laughs> well, that's good. And we're very lucky to have you looking at all of these things. So thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, my name is Inish Santos. I am the associate editor for Womanfology. And once again, here I am to tell you all about the new issue, Day of the Girl. You will read about Ruth Amos, inventor of Stair Steady and director of Kids Event Stuff, who will tell us how she went from wanting to pursue a career in law to engineering and being an inventor. Ruth will also inform us about an initiative she has been supporting to get girls to try out welding. Corinne Bryan, engineer and founder of Butterfly Books, tells us about this publishing company she founded with her brother that smashes gender stereotypes. Butterfly Books shows children that their moms can be anything from firefighters to soldiers and that their dads can be nurses. Also, Felicity Baker shares with us her grandmother's story. Her grandmother, Hazel Hill's calculations when she was only 13 years old were crucial for the victory of Britain in World War II. Felicity tells us how proud she is of her grandmother's pioneering achievements as a girl and also throughout the rest of her career. Tina Hodgson talks about her daughter Evie's rare blood disease. Tina and Evie are looking for a life-saving bone marrow donor match and we urge you all to help them if you can. We'll share what you can do to make a difference. Louisa Magnussen is founder of MindsAnonymous.com, a safe space to anonymously share mental health stories. Louisa talks about the importance of nurturing mental health in girls because of the pressures they face every day and reminds us that we should be kind to each other. Shaima Elbana, the head of science programs at British Council Egypt, tells us all about gender balance in STEM in Egypt and the Newton Moshafara Fund, a partnership between Egypt and the UK to advance the capacity of the Egyptian science sector, increase the amount of quality scientific research being carried out in Egypt and help mitigate social and economic challenges. 
Amanda Maeshi is a 16-year-old advocate for Girl Guiding UK and she talks about how their community supports girls and women all over the country and is helping them get through COVID-19. Amanda also shares the results of their annual Girls Attitude survey where they asked over 2,000 girls for their thoughts concerning their everyday lives. Hazel Grant is an early year delivery manager at Transport for London and she lets us know about the outreach work the organization does in schools and why this is so important. Finally, Anna Woodruff, a sustainability specialist and program manager at Watch Girls in Science Fellowship, tells us how the program focuses on career exploration and building confidence for young women who might be interested in STEM. She also shares how important these initiatives are for high school-aged young women because it gives them a chance to experience what it is like to be a scientist. Do check out our website www.womanphology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all for me. So, Ollie Black, friend of the show, welcome to the Womanthology podcast. How are you doing? Good, good. Nice to see you again, Fee. I've not seen you for a bit. Um, COVID has clearly not uh, not affected you too badly. You're looking on, on good form. Thank you so much. So kind. So kind. So, Ollie, uh, we have chatted with you several times before. You're very good value for money uh, in the written magazine. But for people who miss these, please, could you tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about your organisation? Sure. So I, th- I think probably uh, when we, we've interviewed in the past, I think my brother and I started a business called My Family Care, which is all around helping people combine work and family and family kind of in its broadest sense. So um, it's kind of childcare, dependent care, elder care, kind of we're all, we've all got kind of quite a, kind of kind of extended families and we spent 10 years doing that and then last year we uh we sold our business actually to a business called bright horizons who are the uh the global uh kind of provider in the in the sort of childcare space and they also uh do uh, a lot in, in in terms of with corporates most of their businesses with corporates so i now am uh, i'm working for bright horizons uh helping them to kind of they're taking a lot of the stuff that we did and the stuff that they like um, and helping them utilize that both here and abroad. Fantastic. So what sort of things would you be doing day to day? I think probably day to day, I spend most of my time talking to our, our clients. So we've got about 400 odd uh, clients in the UK. And now under Bright Horizons, we're about 1000 uh, globally. Um, so I, I think I probably spend most of my time uh, talking to our client relations team, our client services team and our, and our clients really. So today, for my sins, we had a, a webinar with 60 um, odd financial institutions, finding out what they've been doing during COVID to help their working parents and carers kind of uh, navigate the journey, what that means for them in terms of their flexible working and agile working policies going forward and their offices, what issues they've found, etc. So I've been participating in that. So yeah, that's what that's what, that's my kind of I guess my day-to-day job. So you work in the diversity and inclusion space, but for our readers, listeners who aren't in that kind of space, could you just give us a bit of a broad overview of the diversity and inclusion agenda and why it's so important for business and society more broadly? No pressure there. Obviously, that's quite a big ask. I'm, I'm just clearly going to do an absolutely rubbish. I'm, honestly, the DNI experts out there are going to weep. At kind of. Uh, in essence, if you uh, and I'm going to talk about gender diversity, which is probably more akin to, to what we're talking about here, but it, it goes across across all all types of diversity. If you get equal numbers of men and women, uh, and that this goes then against race, religion, etc., at every sphere of the organisation, the organisation does better. Whatever metric you want to look at, share price, profitability, whatever, whatever the, the KPIs are for your business. And it, it kind of makes common sense. You know, it, from a gender perspective, 50% of the brains in this world are female and 50% are male. And if you get that at every stage of the organization, guess what? You make better decisions you reflect society, you reflect all of those kind of things. And to give you the soapbox bit, women uh, kick our butt academically. 
So, um, I, I, and uh, honestly, this is not doing myself down by any stretch of the imagination. My, my wife and even my daughters are more intelligent than I am. Uh, so there's more women out of law school, med school, grad school, you name it. And yet, UK PLC is still run by white middle-aged blokes. And so you've got all of this talent going into the workplace. And what happens is that we leak that talent um, through the process. And you've got lots of people running around, you know, the Hammond reviews and all the rest of it kind of going, oh, there's not enough women on board. But actually kind of on the graduate or the, the intake level, organizations get it right. And the leaky talent pipeline they talk about all comes, a lot of it comes when people go off to have families. And do you know what? If you can help people combine work and family, then they're massively engaged. I love the fact that I can have a career and a family. Someone's not forcing me to choose between these two things. I'll nail their work, work in the timeframes I've got available because I've got this other thing that's equally important to me. Um, and I'm going to be really quite loyal because I've been able to balance that. I'm infinitely less likely to go somewhere else, even if it's more money that's going to put that back into conflict. So for organizations, there's so many wins for getting it right. And nearly every organization that I've come across all says our people are our most important asset and yet do some incredibly kind of daft things that make it difficult to hang on to people. So diversity includes gender, basically get equal numbers of men and women throughout the organization and you'll do better. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So we were all working really hard for this and we were making progress and then all of a sudden COVID-19. Is, that is risking setting us back on progress towards gender balance. So You're right. You're right. I mean, I mean, so let's, because everyone spends all their time spending about the kind of the negatives. Oh my God, you know, the, the problems that it creates. I mean, COVID has been brilliant for flexible, agile working. It's ridden a coaching horses through the argument of oh well you've got to be in the office to do this job uh, presenteeism it's all important etc so from from one standpoint you know brilliant because it's got rid of all of that argument of people people can do it i think the downside are a few things so and again i came back to families families have been absolutely kind of shafted through this because children not in school if you not in care lack of infrastructure to be able to work you've then had the summer holidays where again lack of infrastructure carers you know people looking after their parents or carers etc so families have been fundamentally frazzled by by covid and there's no let up you know if i talk to my my, my friends in the u.s some of their children are back to school two hours a day I mean, how, how does that work? Um, so, you know, almost an, an impossibility. And, and I think the shame of what I've seen, because I thought, well, this is going to be amazing. You're going to have, you know, dads at home with their kids as well. They're going to get fully involved and that's going to be great, isn't it? We're going to shine a light on the bedroom as well as the boardroom that we've been doing. But actually, a lot of the data we've seen is that the mums have kind of picked up the picked up the slack. And I saw a stat the other day that they're doing 27% more uh, than previously. And I think you, you, the worry, the, clearly the worry is, is that this leads to people exiting the workplace, uh, women exiting the workplace. And we've just set ourselves back through this. So on the positive side, agile working has never been had never been better your ability to do your role and have some of the flexibility that we need to make it all hang together um but i think in this lockdown period especially i think women by all accounts have taken up the, the lion's share of it and are fundamentally frazzled and there is a danger that they exit the work the workplace and we do set ourselves back um, from the progress and strides we were making sure yeah absolutely when you see the stats they they are quite scary mm there's still more work to do i would suggest (laughs) so this uh issue of the magazine and also the the podcast is about the day of the girl so you are a uh, if i get my facts right you're a dad of three but boys and girls and we've spoken about uh this before and your dislike of gender stereotyping so how does this manifest itself and how do you challenge it as a parent so I, I look. I I, I, um, I probably shouldn't get it. You know, we were four boys. We grew up in Yorkshire. A hard-ass mum who you know kind of was was tougher than my dad kind of thing. But I've got a girl, and then we had twins, girl and a boy, twins. And I I I hate the gender stereotype. I hate the fact that it's kind of well, boys do this and girls do that, and the pink and blue, etc. And I think we we we. I mean, I. I 
I know we spoke about, I'm probably slightly too, too extreme, but Kat, who's our youngest girl, was really very shy. And, you know, the, Jacob was full of bravado and all the rest of it. And I ended up taking Kat to uh, boxing lessons with Jacob. I mean, not only did she get to duff up her, her little brother, but the confidence bit to have some, some front, I love. Um, both of my girls play cricket. Now, I, I can't play cricket for Toffee, but I love the fact that actually we've got rid of rounders, which... I'm going to upset people by saying I think it's a bit of a rubbish sport. But suddenly, you've now got girls and boys playing a sport that physically, certainly at this age, my, my children are you know kind of 12, 11, and 11, but can absolutely do together. And, and that's brilliant. I love So those kind of, I know I've kept on talking about the sport element, but yeah, there's no reason for, for them to be any, to be any different. And, it, and it's great. Uh, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a massive advocate of it. And I think you're right that if you started at too young, then it gets in, ingrained. So I know one of your other questions is kind of around the, the sport bit and all the rest of it, but there's some, there's some good, I'm, I'm probably going to lead on to your next question, but there's some, there's some really good, um, data around around sport and, uh, and people playing competitive sports in a way so you look at women that are in the c-suite etc and, and and essentially going back to my point is that if i think about the academics um if you go to school and you pass these exams you'll be recognized and and women kick our butts completely ac- academically and then you get into the workplace and it's not quite so defined oh well if i just do a good job i'll be recognized well maybe not maybe there's a bit of sharp elbows maybe it's a bit competitive maybe you know um and often what you find is that people that haven't been in, in that environment sometimes take a slightly back seat. Oh, well, just because I'm doing a good job, but no one's recognizing me for it. You've got these blokes who are, you know, women look at a job description and they turn over the page to see if there's 11, 12 and 13 in terms of kind of going, can they do it? Blokes look at the first two and kind of go, well, I could probably blag the rest kind of thing. So actually there's a, there's a really, I, I, I love the fact that my girls are playing competitive sports and they are rubbing shoulders with boys and there is no difference. And I think there's an element of that in the workplace where, that's okay. I'm not confrontation, whatever it might be, competitiveness. Well, that's fine. And you, you've seen all of those bits where we be talking about girls being bossy, for example, and that's a bad thing. Not in the slightest. So I, I'm, a, I'm basically, I'm a big advocate of not having any of the gender stereotyping uh, going on. Well, it's the Sheryl Sandberg thing, isn't it? Um, uh, she didn't want girls to be told they were bossy. She wanted them to be told they had organisational skills. <laughs> yes. My, honestly, out of the twins, if it, if it makes sense, like kind of Jacob, I worry, I worry whether he's got his head on. You know, Cassidy's sister is literally organising him bar none. Jacob, you need this bag. Have you got this kit? You know, I mean, like, yeah, we've got Spanish test tomorrow, Jacob. Have you resigned? And he literally, he would be kind of wandering around, kind of not knowing which way is up if it wasn't for his sister. So um, we've talked a little bit about sports, unconscious bias in the workplace. So yeah, how, is that still a thing? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think, I think we've all got that, but I, there's a little bit of sheep dipping Oh, we've done unconscious bias training. Great. We've sheep dipped everyone in unconscious bias training. That's great. Aren't we doing aren't we doing well? So there's a little bit of that kind of going on if you if you like. Uh so yes, of course it's it's really it's really important. Um but yeah, as I say, I, I don't want I I think I can't remember who was it coined it, but sheep dipping your people in unconscious bias training isn't isn't gonna solve it. So Ollie, what is what what's going on with you at the moment? What's coming up for Bright Horizons? I was half expecting you to turn up on this call with an American accent. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Do, do you know what? I mean, what's what's definitely uh COVID has moved families combining work and family and wellness and mental massively up the agenda for for corporates so from our side you know we've never been uh, busier in terms of telling people about what we what we do uh, and, and the reasons why and standing on a soapbox to kind of go this is why you need to care about about these things uh what recent things we've done so we've d- built out a whole educational piece that we've done kind of recognizing that some children have not been in in school and therefore the big stress for for, for parents has been kind of how do I help my, my children catch up so we've built out a big educational piece we are uh, we're doing some bits with uh, Ariana Huffington's thing on Thrive which is which is interesting uh, as well um, and and really with I guess it's kind of our business where it started a lot in the professional services and, and that sort of industry is scaling up to go much much broader and we're seeing all kinds of interesting people recognizing that this is something that they want to get right and, and putting their arm around their their employees to say look we're here for the journey uh, if you like 
Well, it sounded very exciting. Ollie, will you keep speaking with us? Can we speak with you again and find out how things are progressing and if you've sorted Absolutely. out COVID? <laughs> no pressure. Delighted to. It's always it's always fun talking to you, Fee. And I, uh, you know, listen, we're we're I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Uh, you know, genuinely there probably aren't enough blokes out there banging banging the drum. But um I, I grew up in, in Yorkshire. My mum was if she'd been in charge of the D-Day landings, we probably would have celebrated three days early and there wasn't an outlet for, for her growing up in, in, in Yorkshire. And so I looked at uh, you know someone very talented who had nowhere to, to push that talent out with. And I'm, I, think, I think today's world is, is hopefully is changing. It's a force for good uh, and it's going to be better, not worse. Well, we are coming from the same place and thank you because you've supported us right from the start. So, and that means a lot. So we are going to, we'll, we'll keep speaking with you. So we'll, we'll have you back again and say we can find out how everything's progressing. But thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. No problems at all. Sadly, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now, but join us in the next episode, which is Women in Medicine. For now, take care and stay safe.